Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Well, these past several weeks, we have been meditating on our ever intensifying identity in Christ. You see, it's very important that we understand who we are in the eyes of God. And that we embrace who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. Well, so far we have seen who we are because of the cross that Jesus bore on our behalf. And why this is the good news. But this morning, I want us to begin with the beginning of our story. And so as we come into the book of Genesis, we see God the Creator speaking a universe into existence. And he's bathed in life and he's filled it with all of this life. He's created humankind in his image and he's given them dominion over everything else that that has life upon the face of this earth. And so we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, walking with, with God there in the garden. And yet before we even know it though, the voice of God is no longer the only voice that is speaking into their their lives anymore. There is now another voice that is speaking to them. And it's saying, "Did, did God actually say? Eve says, God did say. And yet then we hear a serpent who is saying to Eve and she's saying that, Listen, God is holding out on you. God is the one who is deceiving you because he knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree of which he commanded you not to even touch, you're going to be just as smart and as wise and as powerful as he is. God lied to you. You will not surely die as he said that you would. And I mean, if there was ever a temptation that appealed to the pride of man, that was it. That we could be equal with God in that regard. And I mean, before we know it, we see Eve as well as her husband Adam enticed. And once they have been enticed by desire, that desire gives birth to a word called sin. And what sin infiltrates into their their souls and into their their hearts that unleashes death and now what we have is is the woman is pointing at the serpents the man is pointing at his wife as well as at the god who created him and i mean this was the beginning of all pain this was the beginning of all suffering and sorrow Heartache and heartbreak, anguish and agony, tears and sin, separation, sickness. It all begins right here with a decision to distrust God's voice and to revel and to indulge in the lies of the accuser, 
of the adversary, Hasatan, the serpent. And it is now in this very distorted world that God's judgment is rendered and that repercussions begin to reorder this world. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God addresses that serpent, Satan. And what he says to him in verse 15 is that I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, in other words, what God is saying to the serpent as well as to all of creation is that one day from out of Eve, from out of womankind, is going to arise one who's going to walk this earth in order that he might deliver it. And yes, you are going to bruise him on the heel, and yes, it is going to leave a nasty mark, and yes, it is going to, by all appearances sake, appear as if you have just crushed him underneath your feet. And I'm going to let you know way back in the Garden of Eden that even though it's going to appear that way, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under his feet. Under his nail-scarred feet, he shall bruise your head, God says. And this is the very first reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we see. And yet, more significantly than even that, though, this is a promise, this is a guarantee of the decisive overthrow of Satan and the realm of darkness. And then he speaks to the woman, and of course, from from here comes a promise of excruciating pain in childbirth, and that a husband is to rule over her. And yet then, as he speaks to Adam, this is really what I want to emphasize to us this morning in terms of who we are. We're in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. It says, and to Adam he said that that because you have listened to the voice of your wife Eve, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat of it, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. That in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And, And here is what I want us to capture this morning. Here is where God says, here is what you are. Here we see who we are in the eyes of of Almighty God. Where in those last remaining words of verse 19, God says, for you are, this is what you are, for you are, and then God says, dust. And to dust, God says, you shall return. And I mean, this is where we come from. This is what we are in the eyes of God. Whereas Adam and Eve surrender to the lust of the eyes and to the lust of the flesh and to the boastful pride of life. And as you and as I likewise last week surrender to the lust of the flesh, to the lust of the eyes and to the boastful pride of life. God is reminding us. God is revealing. He's saying to all of humankind, mankind, womankind, and you are dust. It's the Hebrew word afar, meaning debris. 
dry earth, ash, gray powder. That when the Creator had created us, the paint that He used was the soil of the earth that we walk upon. And so you see, what this means for you and me is that as people, we are not exactly as big, as powerful, as invincible, or as indestructible as we think we are sometimes. We are, in fact, far more frail and fragile than we could ever imagine. We need to ceaselessly remember just how utterly microscopic you and I are, apart from the love and the power of God in us. We need to be like Abraham as he prays out of his great love and compassion for Sodom and Gomorrah. What he prays to his God is that I am speaking to the Lord right now. Even though all that I am is ash and dust. I am ash and dust speaking to my Creator. He is God and I am dust, in other words. And yet what this also means is that all of these problems of ours, all of these tears that we cry so wretchedly and bitterly, see what this means is that they are all temporary tears. They are all fleeting problems that we inevitably undergo. You see, we need to be like this beautiful woman of God who we read of in 1 Samuel, whose name is Hannah. And Hannah is living in a time and in a society where to be barren was a curse upon a woman. It was a death blow to her lovability. Her identity, in other words, was childless. Who she was to these people was a barren woman, but I mean, as lonely and as depressing as that existence would have been, all of the ostracizing that she was undergoing, what what her attitude was as she prayed was, Lord, you are the one who makes poor and rich, who brings low and who exalts, who raises up the poor from out of the dust, who lifts up the needy from out of the ash heap so that they might sit with with kings and with royalty in seats of honor. Because after all, it is God who who guards his faithful ones. And is it any wonder that with an attitude like that, that her identity changes? She doesn't have to have a child to be loved by God. She was loved by God coming into the world and loved by God going out. But, But very soon, though, she becomes the mother of Samuel. And her identity changes. As God says, for dust you are and to dust you shall return, what this means for us as well is that when we see all of the aggressors of this world, all of the cheaters and all of um, predators of this world, where it just looks like they could commit any crime that they want to and get away with it, there is a time that is coming very soon in the blink of an eye where they're not going to be getting away with anything. You see, God has the last word, and we all must stand before him and give an accounting. As God says, for dust you are, and the dust you shall return, this is why arrogance is so absolutely forbidden within us. 
This is why human pride is the most foolish indulgence on the face of this earth. You know, every now and then I will meet another minister. And they're not all like this, obviously, but oftentimes I would say you, you might just meet a minister who's very insecure. And sometimes I will meet another minister who seems very determined to make me feel as if he's up here as a minister and I'm way down here and I just don't measure up to, to them. And whenever I meet somebody who is very competitive in their ministries, that I just always have the smile on my face now as I, I just process that, well, you have convinced yourself pretty good that you are better at being a pile of dust than I am. Congratulations. You are better at being a pile of dust than I am. That and a quarter will buy you a gumball at Walmart, so enjoy all of that, I guess. But no, I mean, all that we are is dust. God is the only one who is ascended, <laughs> who is greater than anyone. As God says, for dust you are, this is why it is so utterly important to love. As a couple of prophets out of Liverpool once said, life is very short, and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends. And yet, especially as God says, for dust you are, it is, it is revealing the world and the things of the world through the eyes of God. I mean, we look at a guy like King Solomon. King Solomon had all the money and possessions of this world. He had more women than Wilt Chamberlain. Had more wisdom than Albert Einstein. But at the very end of his life, he's looking at his empire. And, and all that he sees is a crumbling, eroding, deteriorating empire. And he has just one word for it. And Solomon says, vanity. It's all a striving after the wind. Vanity of vanities. And as you and I look at our crumbling empires, what this also means for us is don't get too comfortable in this world. Yes, enjoy it all today because tomorrow it all turns to ash. And it all turns to trash. And that's because after all, all that we are and everything that we own and that we possess it's just dust in the wind. And so God says, for dust you are, you are dust. And yet then it gets even more urgent though, as he also says, notice also he says, for to dust we shall return. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says that the thought is overwhelming to me that soon this body of mine must be a carnival for worms. That in and out of these places where my eyes are glistening, foul things, the offspring of loathsomeness shall crawl. That this body must be stretched out in still, cold, abject death. Death then must become a noxious, nauseous thing for me. Cast out by those who even love me most, who will say, bury my dead from out of my sight. A few weeks ago in the news, there was a basketball player who was who used to play in the NBA, whose name was Mark Eaton. And reports came of his death. I mean, Mark Eaton was a mountain of a man, seven foot four, 
290 pounds. I mean, the guy towered over Shaquille O'Neal. As short as a man that is standing next to me is how short I was standing next to Mark Eaton. And just a few weeks ago, Mark Eaton told his wife that he was going to go for, for a bicycle ride around the block. Whereas the reports had circulated that he gets one block away from his house and it's believed at least that, that he had a heart attack and that he fell and that he was pronounced dead as soon as he got to the ambulance. And I mean, just 72 hours later though, it's absolutely mind-blowing as you're looking at that pile of ashes in an urn. And as you're looking at that pile of, of ash, of earth and debris, that what is going through your mind is that, that that pile of dust once had a voice, once had a face, once stood seven foot four inches, once blocked Michael Jordan's shot. And you see, I think what it is for each and every one of us is that we just get so used to spending so much of the time upon the face of this earth driving to work and paying bills that, that it just feels like this is never going to end. But there are so many analogies in the scriptures that, that reveal and that remind us of what we are in the eyes of our Creator, of what we truly are. Psalm 39, King David says that we are here for such a brief amount of time on the face of this earth that, that we are almost apparitions who are floating around in this world even as we live. Psalm 39, David says, Let me know how transit I am, O Lord. Behold, you have made my days as the width of my hand, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And then he says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Well, in 2 Samuel, there is a woman who bows before the king of Israel and whose words are very beautiful and poetic as well. And she says, for, O king, we must all surely die. For we are water spilled upon the ground that once it has been spilled, it cannot be gathered up into one unit again. And maybe the very next time that you accidentally spill water on your countertop and you're trying to clean it up with all, all these paper towels that you just stop for a moment and just look at that and that we process, I'm looking into a metaphor of what I am. That is me right there. I'm a man, I'm a woman, but I'm also a puddle. James, likewise, he compares us to a beautiful flower, a rose perhaps. For a very short time, it is very vivid and it's red, but, but very quickly though it begins to erode and to deteriorate into blackness. And then the stem falls off. God is saying that perhaps the very next time that we see a flower as it decomposes in our houses, that we just stop and that we process, that is what we are. James also says, most memorably, that, that you don't even know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. 
You don't even know if you have a tomorrow because after all, this is what we are. This is who we are. We are a mist. A vapor that appears for a very short time, but then it dissolves into the morning breeze. And maybe the very next time that we are walking through Westchester in the downtown square, then we see steam wafting up from the manhole covers that that we process, this is what I am. Wherein despite of all of our accomplishments and academics, and despite of all of our pomp and pride, humankind and all of its glory is nothing but dust coming in and nothing but dust coming out. But with the transformational miracles of Christ in us, we take on the form of something so much more greater, beautiful, something that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that is God in us. Now, I've had a privilege of being in many interfaith gatherings in past years. And about four or five years ago, I took part in my very first Ash Wednesday. Now, I understand that in the churches of Christ, this is not our custom. We don't really do Ash Wednesday. We understand that we don't literally have to have an ashen cross sprinkled across our forehead so that we can show everybody everywhere that we go. We tend to be a little more discreet about that, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not the judge of that. But What I loved about Ash Wednesday, though, is how intentional it was. As you get together with with other Christians, and and they are reminding you, and you are reminding them that we need that whatever our sins are, we we need to put these sins away. We need to turn away from whatever darkness we are harboring within us, and to draw near to God with every fiber of our being. We've got to remember that ash we are, and that so soon ash we will return. And yet, even though it's absolutely true that you and I have failed God miserably, and that we've woefully fallen short of God, and and I imagine have even grieved His Spirit many, many years of our lives, I've got good news for us this morning. You know, I am a, a proclaimer of good news, and here it comes. And that is that even though we have failed God again and again and again, listen, listen to me. God knows what we are. Psalm 103 is yet another psalm of King David. And what he says in Psalm 103 speaks to this. Where he says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. For he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our sins from our souls. For as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And then verse 14, listen to this especially. Go home believing this 
with all of your being this morning that where it says in verse 14, for God knows our frame. He created us after all. And he remembers that we are, this is what we are, he, he remembers that we are dust. You see, God is well aware of where we came from and, and where these bodies of ours are going. He understands our humanity and, and how susceptible we are to decay. How easily you and I collapse under the burdens of this world. And when he looks at us, he knows what he's looking at. He knows that what he's looking at is dust. Well, just four months before she died at 27 years old, Amy Winehouse was in a recording studio making a song with Tony Bennett. Of course, Amy Winehouse is a huge star at this juncture of her career. And yet as she stands next to Tony Bennett, though, a voice that even Frank Sinatra genuflected before, she feels about this big. <laughs> she understands that I am in the presence of a legend of music. And so understandably, as she is recording a song and it gets to her part of the duet, she begins singing erratically and she starts going off key. She stops the whole recording and says, no, 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 that was me. I was terrible. I was terrible. And then she looks over at Tony Bennett and says, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste your time. I just don't want to waste your time. And she paces around that that recording studio, her eyes welling up in tears, her face constricting in sadness. And with the very sweetest, most gentle tone, the voice of Tony Bennett soothes her. And she says, we'll just keep doing it until we get one. I'm not in any hurry, are you? She says, no. And he says, well, since we're in no hurry, we have time. We've got all the time in the world to get this right. Amy Winehouse says, no, I've got to get it right. I've got to get it right. I'm just not getting it right. And with that gentle, sweet tone, Tony Bennett says, you are. It's sounding better every single time. And you sound wonderful. And just a few hours ago, I was listening to that song just before I came here. And I never would have known that they even had that moment in that studio. Because Tony Bennett and Amy Winehouse made beautiful music together. And as I watched that clip, I had tears welling up in my eyes. My face was constricting and sadness. Because I was remembering times where I have felt like Amy Winehouse standing in the presence of Tony Bennett as a disciple of Jesus, as a man, as a person, as a husband, as a minister. Countless times that I've sat in dark auditoriums on Sunday afternoon, feeling, praying to God, God, that was the worst sermon that has ever been preached. That I'm the worst minister who has ever walked the face of this earth. I'm just not getting it right. I'm not getting it right. I, God, I don't want to waste your time. 
I don't want to waste your time. I just don't want to waste your time. I am nothing like you, Jesus. And with nothing but gentleness and loving kindness ringing in His voice, with His hand on our shoulder, with His angels encamped around us, Jesus says, oh, yes, you are getting it right. It's getting better every single time. It may be true that you are dust. And you may be a mist that appears for a short while and then vanishes. All of that is true, but you are getting it right. And it's sounding better every single time. Hey, I'm in no hurry. Are you? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but, but we have this moment right at this very moment in time. We've got right now, we've got this morning. And yet still, in our imperfection, in our sin, we, we all say to Jesus, no, I'm just not getting it right. I'm not getting it right. All I ever do is fail you. I'm nothing like you. And Jesus says, yes, you are like me. It's getting better every single time, and you sound wonderful. Listen, I never told you that you had to be God. <laughs> All that I want you to do is to sing and make music with me in this world. And when we sing with the Holy Spirit, we make beautiful music in this world. So as we bring all of this to its close this morning, what, what I want you to invite me to and what I invite you to in, in turn is, is what Moses says in Psalm 90 where he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that you may create in us a heart of wisdom. And so that is what I want us to learn to do, to simply learn to number our days. That everybody who we speak to, every conversation that we have, especially those ones that we don't want to have with, with certain kinds of people, that we mentally process this highly creative way of life called the way of Jesus. We just imagine in our minds that this other person who I'm speaking to has less than 24 hours to live. I mean, wouldn't that change the way that we speak to the world? to our spouses, to those who we live with, to those who we don't like in this world. You see, this is why every single day, I mean, Amanda will not let me leave the house or even roll over and go to sleep until I have hugged her with all of my might and said, I love you. I love you so much. It's like I'm just going over to Giant for, for orange juice. And she says, I don't care. Give me a hug and tell me that you love me. I'm just going over to ShopRite to buy dog food. I don't, listen, I don't care. Hug me like you mean it and tell me that you love me. Because I, this might be the last time I ever get to see you. This is why we need to savor every single time that we get to be together. Every worship service, savor it, cherish it. And yet especially this is, if we learn to number our days, then what this means is that we, we love the appearing of God. 
We take every opportunity to imitate Jesus to this broken world. And that we love Jesus like there's no tomorrow. That our attitude in our bones is, man, you can have America. You can have Fox News and CNN and Tucker Carlson and Wolf Blitzer. You can have the Cowboys versus the Eagles because all that I'm living for is to love this world like Jesus does. And to love the things above as I am here below. Because after all, all that we are is dust in the wind. A mist that appears for a short time and then dissolves. Water spilled upon the ground. A decomposing rose. For dust we are. And to dust we shall return. And yet with Christ in us, we are dust that happily leaves remains of this earthly tent down here on earth and our souls soar to our paradise.